Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 85 this morning. Psalm 85, and I'm just going to read the first seven verses today. Psalm 85, beginning in verse 1. Well, the introduction uh, or the title says, To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Salah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, <clears throat> that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. This is the word of God. Uh, may he bless it with power today as it is proclaimed. Let's, let's ask for his blessing. Lord, to you we look. And our prayer is the same as the psalmist. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? May it be, Lord, as we go through this psalm, uh, that you restore us, you revive us, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the introduction to this psalm says, uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Do you know who Korah was in the Old Testament? You can read about uh, Korah in the book of Numbers, but he led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, who were God's appointed leaders. Uh, he led a rebellion and challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron. And Korah and his followers, the book of Numbers says, were not just contending with <clears throat> Moses and Aaron, but they were contending against the Lord. And in Numbers 26, verses 10 and 11, we read that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a sign. Nevertheless, the sons of Korah did not die. Uh, we read that the sons of other men involved in uh, leading that rebellion, Dathan and Abiram, their sons perished with their fathers. But the sons of Korah did not die. We, we're not given any reason for that. Uh, no explanation other than the sovereign grace of God. Think about that. Think about others who have perished and gone to hell, but God has had mercy on you. No explanation other than the sovereign grace of God. Well, these, these, these appointed singers, these sons of Korah, they had a reason to give thanks they were spared, and so you and I have been spared by God's grace. And so Psalm 85, we're thinking about this prayer for revival, our need of revival. But it begins with gratitude by remembering what God has done uh, in the past. And uh, there are two sections and therefore two points to the sermon today on these first seven verses. And the first is praise for past mercies, and then second, a prayer for revival. Uh, so if we would see revival 
in our lives, in our church, in our land, if we desire it at all, uh, first of all, we need to praise God for the past blessings and mercies that he has shown to us. Verse 1, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. And no mention, again, is made of the particulars here. But most commentators uh, think that this fits well with the experience of God's people after they returned from captivity in Babylon. There is evidence that a few of the Psalms were written post-exilic, after the exile. We don't know for sure, but perhaps that's what's going on. So, But think about Israel, and we read some of that in Lamentations, the, the description of what life was like after they came back from captivity. Um, uh, they returned to find that Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple had been destroyed. Uh, the people were in dire straits. So even though they had been set free, uh, things were not going very well for them, and they were surrounded by a lot of... Uh, jealous and hateful and powerful enemies who did not want them to come and rebuild. Uh, Read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra and you will see that. But it would have been easy uh, for them, and many times they did. uh, And you can, again, reading the words of Lamentations, there is a sense of great sorrow. And it would have been easy for them to, to hang their heads and just go around moping around, feeling sorry for themselves. And you and I can relate. We, at times, have indulged in that self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves in the midst of far less difficult trials. But the psalmist does not do that. He does not dwell on um, what is wrong. Instead of feeling sorry for himself, he remembers the kindness and favor of God. When you are feeling down and feeling sorry for yourself, this is a good thing to do, to remember what God has done for you, to remember what good things he's given to you. Lord, you've been favorable to your land. You brought back the captivity of Jacob. This is a great thing. This is an answer to prayer. Uh, it, it It was a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, and he reminds himself in that phrase, in that verse, that, that the promised land of Canaan was God's land. He, he refers to it as your land. This land is your land, Lord. Uh, it was God's land. The people were his people. Why? Because God had made a covenant with them. And though he punished them, though he disciplined them, he uh, brought them back out of captivity and back into the land. So at some point after they're back in the land, if this is the case here, then the psalmist is giving thanks. It's so easy for us to forget to do this, to neglect, to give thanks. But you know what Philippians 4, uh, verse 6 says. It says, Then everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we must always be uh, remembering to give thanks. So... If we go to the Lord and forget the past mercies of God, we are uh, very likely to start taking God for granted. Or if we do think of him, we think he only exists to just do more things for us and that we don't have to think much about him. 
And that's what got Israel, you see, into trouble in the first place. They forgot God. They got into the promised land. And he had warned them about this in Deuteronomy. Watch out. When you get into the promised land and you, and you enjoy all the blessings, the milk and the honey and so forth, that you forget your God. Remember, he says. Well, they forgot. And they took him for granted. And I believe in our own nation today, we have a similar uh, problem of ingratitude, forgetting the good things that God has done for us as, as a nation. Uh, and there is a place uh, for certainly for criticizing our country and it's and identifying our sins. I do that uh, from the pulpit. I do that in my conversation. There's a lot of bad things going on. And we do have to speak about these things. But we must remember the goodness and kindness of God and give thanks for what we have. You know, many today can find nothing good to say about America. Well, I can find a lot of good things to say about America, a lot of blessings. No, we are not a perfect nation. We're a sinful nation. Uh, but, but today, you see, a grievance culture has developed that is all complaint and, there, and there's no thanksgiving whatsoever. There's no sense of blessing. And if you talk about blessing, then uh, people will condemn you for it. In Romans 1.21, the Apostle Paul explains one of the root causes for God's wrath and punishment of mankind. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And we fail to give thanks. Uh, uh, then we're going to become futile in our thoughts and our foolish hearts will be darkened, as Romans says. So you and I are Christians. We believe that all blessings come down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from him. And therefore, we ought to show the rest of the world what it means to give thanks and acknowledge God in our lives and to do so publicly. So my prayer is that uh, a, a spirit of thanksgiving that we ought to have and that we express would become contagious. Okay, so begin to practice thanksgiving in your daily life, in your daily conversations. Uh, just mention that I thank God for this or that or whatever. See what happens. See what happens. Uh Revival, I believe, begins when we begin to give thanks. And I think that the psalmist, you see, was right to begin with reflecting on past mercies. Well, what should we be thankful for? The, the Israelites were thankful because God brought them out of captivity um, uh, at, in, in, from Babylonian captivity. You and I haven't experienced that, but we've experienced the captivity of sin, haven't we? Uh, we were slaves to sin, but the Lord, through Jesus Christ and our faith in him, has brought us out of our bondage. Uh, Romans 6 says, but God be thanked, something to thank God for, that you, though you were slaves of sin, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we have much to be thankful for. Uh, in our spiritual lives. The psalmist continues along this vein of thankfulness in verse 2. He says, you've forgiven the iniquity of your people. <clears throat> you've covered all their sins. In order for God to restore his people to the land, he was going to have to forgive them. 
Um, and he did. Uh, and, and thank God for the blessing of forgiveness. We confess our sins. We should every day. But are you, do you thank God for the forgiveness that he brings? Have you ever asked for forgiveness and God did not forgive you? He forgives us uh, when we confess, when we repent. Uh, the Hebrew word for forgiveness here means to lift, to bear up, to carry, uh, to take. And so in Jesus Christ, God has carried away. He's taken away our guilt. He's removed it far from us. Under the old covenant, the, the sins of the people were <clears throat> symbolically laid upon a scapegoat which was then released into the wilderness. And that was uh, represented God taking our sins away. And the Lord, when he died on the cross, you see, he took our sins upon himself and he then, by his death, took them or carried them away. This is, listen to what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Has he taken your sins away? Have you experienced this forgiveness? Well, that's a whole lot of reason right there to give thanks. You say, oh, I've got all this other stuff. That pales into comparison with the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the second part of verse 2 gives us another picture of forgiveness, and that is of the covering of our sins. You have covered all their sin, the psalmist wrote. Uh, when we sin, our conscience, thankfully, lets us know it. And often our response is to try to cover it and hide it, uh, to excuse it and so forth. That's what Adam and Eve did. They covered themselves with fig leaves and they tried to hide from God. Didn't work, but uh, that's that's what we do, and and uh, this is what David did when he had sinned with uh, Bathsheba and having her husband killed. He tried to cover his sin. He wouldn't acknowledge it. He was confronted, and he eventually he did repent and of his sin and acknowledge that. Psalm 32, David writes, "Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven." whose sin is covered. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. See, when David uncovered his sin and didn't hide it anymore, then God, by grace, covered it. The idea is that our sins are covered over as if they don't exist anymore. In his mercy, you see, God hides his eyes and turns away and doesn't look at our sins in anger anymore. Our sins, in particular, are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 gives us another picture of the atoning work. He says, you have taken away all your wrath. So Christ not only takes away our sins, he takes away the wrath of God uh, for those sins. And the, the, the theological and biblical term for this is propitiation. Uh, you see, God turns away his wrath because Christ died in our place, and suffered that wrath uh, as our substitute. You see, God is certainly and rightly offended by our sins, and, and, and we deserve uh, his anger and wrath. And it, it, Scripture says he's angry with the wicked every day. The psalmist here speaks of the fierceness of God's wrath. Think about that. 
we do take his wrath far too lightly, if we even believe there is such a thing today in our, in our culture. Nobody thinks there is anything such as the wrath of God or such a thing as hell. But uh, John Gill writes, he says, the anger of God is very fierce against sin and sinners. It is poured forth like fire, and there is no abiding it. But with respect to the Lord's people, it is pacified by the death of his son. Okay, get hold of the fierceness of God's wrath, but also the greatness of God's propitiation in Jesus Christ, that he would be pacified and turn away that wrath. In verse 4, the psalmist says, Restore us, O God of our salvation. <clears throat> Cause your anger toward us to cease. The word restore is the same word that means to turn or to return. And some translations have it this way, Turn us, O God of our salvation. Now this is a prayer, in essence, for converting grace. Conversion is a turning and it can refer to one's initial conversion or it can refer to a returning to God after backsliding or drifting away from the Lord. Uh, but it reminds us that God alone can restore us. God alone can turn us. In, in Lamentations 5.21 that we read earlier, Jeremiah says, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we'll be restored. Turn us and we'll be turned is what he's saying. Do you need turning this morning? We are often like the proverbial stubborn mule. I am like that. We will not turn. We will not move. No matter how hard we're pushed or pulled, we're stubborn. If you feel that stubbornness, this unwillingness to turn from sin, what should you do? Pray. As the psalmist did, turn me, O Lord, that I might be restored. Turn me from my stubbornness. God has the power to do it. And he commands us, of course, to turn from our sins uh, whenever we do sin. We're called to turn. And yet we lack the strength and the will often to do so. God had indeed turned Israel back to him in the past, but here is the psalmist expressing that ongoing need for turning, to keep repenting. You're familiar with Martin Luther in, 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 on October 31st, the year 1517, when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And do you know what the very first of the 95 theses says? Well, I'm going to tell you. Uh, Luther said, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was it. That's the first thesis. Well, that should be obvious, but it, it, it is true that we must continually, uh, daily, Turn back to the Lord. Turn away from the Lord. Why? Because we continue, continually sin. And that's why we need to continually turn back. And we need the grace of God. Pray for the grace of God to turn us. Pray for yourself and pray for others that God would turn them. They're stubborn just as much as you are and I am. <clears throat> but notice the psalmist prays. He says, restore us. 
It's not just an individual thing. It is individual, but it's really, the prayer is, is corporate. Pray for the church. Pray for the people of this of the church of Jesus Christ on earth. Pray for the people of this nation to be turned. In verse 3, it says, And cause your anger toward us to cease. And then verse 5, Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? He's, I think, describing simply the way that the people of Israel uh, were feeling at the time. Uh, they had endured God's anger for 70 years, being taken into captivity to Babylon. And so when they come back to the land, things really aren't any better. In many ways, they're worse in terms of living conditions. Uh, and, and it may have seemed to them that God was still angry. Uh, they were desperate, you see, for relief uh, from their sufferings, and it seemed there was no end in sight. God, are you going to be angry forever? Will this ever end? Think about that. When is it that God's anger is never quenched? That's, that's what we, we say when we refer to the, the reality of hell itself, of eternal punishment. It never ends, does it? So we can thank God. Will he be angry with us forever? No. No, he will not. Because Jesus Christ has died for us. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. If you know Jesus Christ, then you have his favor. Even though, yes, he is angry with you on account of your sins, um, it's temporary. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So for this, we can give thanks because Christ suffered in our place. He took the wrath of God, the anger of God. And so it's only temporary for us. It will come to an end. Now, the psalmist moves on to make his request proper. And we need to make it ours. We should pray for revival. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Uh, to be revived is to be quickened. It is to be uh, restored to life or health. Um, again, God's people were back in the land, uh, but they were weary. They were weak. They were discouraged. They were poor. There was so much that needed to be done, and they didn't know how it was going to be done. They needed to be revived in their faith and refreshed in their hope uh, before anything was going to go forward in, in, in this situation. And see, their pray this prayer, will you, God, not revive us again? We cannot just simply uh, revive ourselves. We can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and make it happen. Uh, we need God to do this. This is a work uh, that only God can do. Will you not revive us again, he says, which is interesting, because it implies that the people had once been alive. Israel had once been a nation that, that, that pleased him, um, even if it was uh, only in uh, rare moments, perhaps. As we look at Israel's history, we may wonder, uh, but we do find moments of revival that have that have happened in the past. But the first step in praying for revival 
besides giving thanks for past mercies, as we've already talked about, is to recognize our need for revival. When I ask you a question today, do you think we need revival in the church today? Do you think you need revival in your life today? Well, I think it seems clear to me that presently the church in America, the church in the West, the Western world, uh, is in a state of spiritual decline. And certainly it's true uh, numerically. Now, that numerical decline, in, at least in the Western church, may be a pruning. It may be God pruning back the dead wood uh, that you know people are no longer coming to church because they weren't really true believers to start with. Uh, but certainly we need, if we compare the church of today to church to the church in years gone by, times in the past, we certainly can say we are in need of revival. And when we compare ourselves to what the New Testament says we ought to be, we know we need revival. So how do we know when we are, are in need of revival? First of all, when we have lost our first love, as Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, says you've lost your first love. And what are the indicators that we have left our first love? Well, when, first of all, when the Lord and his word have been crowded out of our lives, when the worship services, prayer meetings, Sunday school, uh, Bible studies have no relish for us. We take no delight in them. When personal prayer ceases to be a vital part of our Christian life, we just give a nod here or there. Maybe we say a blessing over our meals and that's about it. We know we need revival when that's the case. Uh, we need revival when we have become content with yesterday's blessings. That's like saying you can have yesterday's manna. No, yesterday's manna for the for the uh, people of God when they were in the wilderness, would not uh, make it to the next day. It would rot before they could eat it. So they couldn't gather up twice as much on one day. They had to do it every day. And this is what you and I need to do. Many people talk about, oh, yeah, I used to be on fire for the Lord. But what about now? Are we on fire for the Lord today? Today is what matters. Forget about the past. Is anyone on fire for Christ today? Oh, that's unseemly in our day and age, right, for somebody to be on fire for the Lord. It, it probably is in the eyes of the world, but that's, that's, that's okay. Uh, it always has been unseemly to the eyes of the world. No, no, no unbeliever, no worldly person who doesn't know Christ, who doesn't love the Lord, no, they're not going to want to see that, but God loves to see it. Um, and so... Uh, we need revival. Uh, we need to be on fire. We're always talking about the past. But seldom do we see God's work in the present. If that's the case, we need revival. We know that we're in need of revival when we are in a backslidden condition and when we tolerate sins that, that before we would have not ever tolerated. Sins that we used to hate and, and never have anything to do with now. It's no problem for us. We need revival. And the church of today, you see, tolerates a lot of things that it didn't used to tolerate. It, it accepts a lot of sin. The bottom line is we've compromised our convictions and we don't have a heart to stand for truth anymore. We've loved this world. We've loved money. We've been pre preoccupied with success instead of holiness and spiritual life. 
And we focused on the things of this earth, this world, instead of the things of eternity. And so you and I, are, when we're content with the status quo in our lives, the status quo in the church, then you know we're in need of revival. And when we are lukewarm, clearly we are in need of revival. So then what is revival? Well, it's not about a mere having a mere emotional experience. It's not about getting a large crowd together uh, for a week or two for a special service. It's not getting excited for a, for a short amount of time and then going back to normal. Uh, revival does not take place when just a few drops of mercy come down. No, it's, it's when showers of blessing, waves of blessing come over a church, a region, or a nation. And re- revival is not the same thing as mass evangelism, although evangelism certainly, uh, many people will be converted when revival comes. What is revival? Revival is when the Holy Spirit comes down in an extraordinary way and produces extraordinary results. It's when God comes in power to shake up, to wake up, and to stir up the hearts of his people, to weep over sin, to confess sin, to turn from sin. And revival occurs when we see our great need of Jesus Christ. When we begin to look to him as as I prayed earlier, uh, and to say for me to live as Christ, to really be able to say that from the heart, then we have been revived. Well, it has been said that the majority of uh, the Western world has never really seen revival. It's been over 100 years since uh, a general revival, a large-scale revival, small, smaller-scale revivals perhaps have taken place, but a large-scale revival has not happened in over 100 years in this country. Uh, Dr. Richard Owen Roberts, uh, I think he's still living. He's getting on in years now, but he's one of the world's uh, foremost experts on revival, and he, and he preaches for revival, but... He writes the following, he says, Revivals have become so scarce that much of the church is hardly aware of their absence. But what is revival like? Dr. Robert says, Revival is like a prairie fire ignited by a bolt of lightning from the heavens. It often seemingly comes out of nowhere. Uh, It's when God in his own time, in his own way, steps into history to do a mighty work that brings us brings people into an acute awareness of the very presence of God. True revival certainly is a sovereign work of God. It's not something we can control or bring about by human effort. And the only thing we can do is is simply to pray, God, will you do it? Will you revive us again in your uh, bulletin and, and the little section of Under the announcements, uh, Spurgeon writes, Brethren, if you will pray this prayer, it will be better than my preaching from it. My only motive in preaching from it is that you may pray it. (laughs) So if the one thing that happens from this sermon is that you begin to pray for revival, Lord, will you not revive us again and make that your daily earnest prayer, then this sermon will have succeeded, like Spurgeon said of his. So, revival comes from God. Dr. Roberts, again, one more quote from him. 
The sovereign Lord of the universe must revive us again, or we will never know what true revival is. If God does not act, our churches will forever remain unrevived. You and I may not have personally experienced uh, a a broad-scale revival uh, in our own lifetime, but there have been great revivals in the past. We think, first of all, of Pentecost. We could go to the Old Testament, but let's start with Pentecost. A great revival. Jesus had come to his own people, but they rejected him. They were dead. The the Israelites were blind. They were dead. They were in spiritual uh, decline. It was awful. And they crucified their Lord who came to them. And, and, And only a small group of disciples followed him on earth. But after his death... burial, resurrection, and ascension, the Spirit of God was poured out. And you know the rest of the story, uh, that God revived His people. The Jewish people began to be converted to Christ. And as we read earlier in Acts 3, uh, you know, Peter was preaching again. He preached on the day of Pentecost, and he preached again in the temple right after that. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come to you from the presence of the Lord. See, that's what what revival is. It's the presence of the Lord coming as we repent of our sins and He refreshes us, He renews us. So there was a time of refreshing and revival. That was Pentecost. But Lord, will you not revive us again? You did it then. Will you not do it again? The the 16th century uh, Protestant Reformation, I believe, in in Europe, was a great time of revival. Uh, The light of the gospel, as we know, had almost gone out entirely. It was a works-based religion being preached, and and people were ignorant of the word of God, ignorant of the way of salvation, and the clergy didn't know the word of God. They didn't live according to the word of God. They often lived immoral lives. And the Christian faith had become a a ritualistic religion, indeed a false religion and an idolatrous one. But God stepped into history, didn't he? And, And through the gospel preaching of men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many others at that time, the church was revived. And the Reformation spread far and wide. And, and the influence of that Reformation uh, is, has been felt in a great way in, in our nation, in our own church, in our denomination. And yet we need a new Reformation. Will you not revive us again, Lord? And there have been revivals in America as well through the powerful preaching of men like George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, uh, the Tennant brothers, the Wesley brothers. A Great Awakening. You can read books on the Great Awakening. It's a very encouraging thing to do so. And if, if God has done that in the past, will He not? Can He not do it again? Certainly, He can. Uh, years later, after the Great Awakening in 1847, an unknown, relatively unknown man named Jeremiah Lanfear gathered a few businessmen for a prayer meeting in New York City. Uh, at the old Dutch church on Fulton Street. And that small group grew into this great army of prayer warriors. Uh, and, and uh, quote, a single prayer meeting turned into a nationwide prayer wave. Tens of thousands were converted. Churches were transformed. Society was benefited. And the kingdom of God moved forward at a rapid 
break. Why? Because God showed up. He made His presence and His power known. That happened in the past. Will you not revive us again, Lord? At the end of verse 6, we see the purpose of this prayer for revival. That your, uh, Revive us that your people may rejoice in you. We will know when revival takes place, if it is taking place, when the joy of the Lord is our strength, when we begin to rejoice in Him, revival leads to joyful praise. It leads to the enjoyment of God. If man's chief end, as the Shorter Catechism says, is to glorify and enjoy God, then revival will show a people and lead us to the preoccupation with God's glory and, and the enjoyment of Him. What are you rejoicing in this morning? Your, your health? Your wealth? Maybe not your health. We have a lot of health issues. But we're, we tend to rejoice in a lot of things other than God. Well, the good thing is when your health is ta- taken away or your wealth disappears, you can still rejoice in the Lord. Revival causes us to value God above all things. And our relationship with Jesus Christ to find true joy in Him. So when we pray for revival, we, we are praying and we're asking God to so work in us that we find our main joy in knowing Him. And then we'll rejoice, not only in the gift, but the giver. Not only in the new life that comes in revival, but in the one who gave that life to start with. Verse 7, he says, show us your mercy, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. You see, revival is a work of God's mercy. We don't deserve it. uh, And we can't earn it. It's a gift. Just like salvation is a gift. Salvation is of the Lord. Revival is of the Lord. And so what I want to do is urge us to persevere in prayer for an outpouring of the Spirit in revival. And to keep praying until God is pleased to give it. And if He doesn't give it in our lifetime, then may your last breath be uttering this prayer for the church as it remains on earth. Because maybe he'll answer that prayer after you and I leave this world. Who knows? But may the Lord revive his church. May God revive this church. May God revive the pastor of this church. May God revive the elders and deacons of this church. May God revive every person who comes and, and participates in this church in any way. And may that revival spill over into our families and our community. I pray that it spreads across our nation and throughout the world. It's the only thing to counteract the spread of evil. I would say that right now, evil in this world is experiencing revival. The forces of evil have to be very happy right now. There's a great revival going on in the world when all the mess that we hear about every day uh, continues to spread like crazy around the world. What's going to counteract that? The only thing is the power of God in revival uh, to turn things around. And only earnest, fervent, persistent prayer for revival will bring it about. Matthew Henry said, when God intends great mercy for his people, he first sets them praying. And then I happened to read a devotion this morning in in one of the devotional books we've had as a church. 
And William Gurnall said the same thing. He said, when God intends a mercy for His people, He stirs up the spirit of prayer in them. It will not happen if, that, if, if prayer doesn't happen. Revival is not likely to happen. So will you start praying revival for revival? Start in your own life, of course. Lord, revive us again, but start with me. And start in your own personal time with God. Ask Him to revive your heart. Ask Him to revive your, the heart of your spouse if you're married. Ask Him to revive the hearts of your children and your church, your nation. Join with others to pray for revival. Join the prayer meeting. Start your own prayer meeting with someone else. Uh, who knows? Perhaps the Lord will revive us again. And if revival comes, uh, we'll know it because our great desire will be to know God, to glorify God, to enjoy Him, to rejoice in Him. And that that spirit of sorrow and shame that we read about in Lamentations, that will di- just disappear when the joy of the Lord comes in. And that we feel that sorrow right now because of the revival of evil in our culture. But we know God is greater than the one who is in the world, than the evil one. And so let's pray for revival. I believe that's very possible because with God, nothing is impossible, is it? Let's pray.